Uh, How about we pray together and we ask for God's help uh, as we look at that uh, psalm. Let's pray. Uh, Gracious Father, thank you that you speak to us in your word, uh, that you reveal yourself to us. And we pray for your help by your spirit now that we would understand what it is you've said to us and that your words would penetrate into our hearts so that we might love and trust you more and live for the glory of the Lord Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. Uh, You're so vain, you probably think this song is about you, don't you? You're so vain, I bet you think this song is about you, don't you? Don't you, don't you. Uh, Who recognises the lyrics? Uh, Carly Simon, You're So Vain. Uh, Rumoured to be about a range of different kind of leading uh, men of the 70s, Mick Jagger, uh, David Bowie, David Cassidy, Warren Beatty. Um, Apparently Carly Simon has admitted that the second verse is about Warren Beatty, uh, but he's so vain he keeps claiming the whole song is about him. Uh, Often, though, I think that's how we read the Psalms. We're so vain, we think these songs are about us. But like Warren Beatty and and You're So Vain, uh, actually only we're partially right. Uh, That is part of the way that Psalms are meant to work. They are congregational songs. Uh, They give us a shared language as God's people for speaking to him. They're a model of how to pray. And that comes out of the fact that they talk about common experiences that we share. Uh, When we read the Psalms, they are meant to resonate and remind, to echo our own experiences. And so Psalm 22 resonates because suffering, unjust suffering, is a common experience for all of humanity. And maybe as we read it, as Kylie read it for us, it struck a chord with you. Maybe you have been in that awful situation of feeling abandoned by God, of having no assurance of his fatherly kindness, of his care. Uh, Maybe you have been there before. Maybe you're even there now. And that's what's happening in this psalm in front of us. But actually, first of all, this isn't a psalm that is about us. Before it speaks of our common experience, this psalm speaks about the experience of one man and this one man's suffering and doubts and death. It's the experience of one man, but this one man's experience changes the experience of suffering and doubt and death for everyone else who hears this psalm. And that's because this one man is the king of God's people. This is a messianic psalm. That is, it's a psalm written by or for Israel's king, the Messiah, God's chosen king. We see that actually in the first line of the psalm. The line that doesn't get a verse number, maybe you could call it verse zero, Uh, but is actually part of the inspired biblical text. We always need to pay attention to that first line when we read the Psalms. And that tells us that this Psalm is to the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a Psalm of David. A Psalm of David. But not David, private citizen. This is David, the king, 
And so this psalm speaks of the experience of God's Messiah, his King. This isn't just a psalm that allows us to resonate with him, to echo his private experience. Uh, In some ways, David represents us in this psalm. Uh, The conflict between his experience and his faith and the shaking and the vindication of his assurance actually changes the way that all of God's people experience that conflict between our experience and our faith. So let's press in and hear about David's experience in Psalm 22 together. And the confronting reality of David's experience is that he is feeling forsaken. He's feeling forsaken. If you're taking notes, that's our first point. And that's clear right from verse 1, isn't it? David feels deserted by God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer and by night, but I find no rest. David is a man of faith, but that's the great paradox of this psalm. He is a believer who has been deserted by God. He feels this incredible distance between himself and his God, that whatever his situation, God stays at arm's length, unwilling to come near and help him. And that distance is so great that David can't find the words to express his anguish. In the psalm, David is looking back and reflecting on his experience. But do you see there, at the time of his uh, suffering, his words are just groans. His pain is too deep for anything but roaring deep from within his gut. And with God so far away, there is no rest for him. With no answer from God, he's too tired to drag himself from his bed and carry on. But though he can't get out of bed, it seems he can't find sleep either. His fears keep him awake through the night. Darkness surrounds him. The silence means there is nothing to drown out his thoughts. He is utterly alone. Perhaps you've been there too. But what makes this experience worse is the absence of God is so visible to everyone who's around him as well. And men deride and despise him because of it. See that in verse 6? But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. There's no sympathy for David. There is just mockery and ridicule. That's the boldness and the cruelty of a mob, isn't it? A mob catches us up and and we say such cruel things that we would never have the boldness to say on our own. And this mob's cruelty is aimed at a victim who is too weak to fight back. He's dehumanised, a worm and not a man. And they twist the knife by saying what's true. That's how you hurt someone, isn't it? You say what is true... Verse 7, all who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Their great cruelty is mocking his faith, ridiculing him for still clinging to his God. 
all of their hatred of God's rule is directed at this victim and yet God makes no response. Maybe you share that experience. A family or friends who use your suffering as an opportunity to mock you and mock your God. How can you believe in a God that's letting this happen to you? Maybe you've heard something like that. For David, the threat escalates in verse 12. His enemies see the opportunity while he's weak and they are strong. Uh, Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. It's bestial imagery. His enemies are wild animals attacking him. And yet he's weak, verse 14. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. With no strength left, he hasn't got it in him to resist anymore. His anxieties have sapped his strength. The knot tied in his stomach means he can't eat. His body aches, he is exhausted. And his enemies just keep closing in. Verse 16, For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. There's no sympathy for him. Instead they see his demise as an opportunity for their own profit like grave, grave robbers digging up bodies to pull out gold fillings and steel rings, like a family at war over the inheritance before you're even dead. And yet the greatest humiliation doesn't come from his enemies, as bad as that is. Do you see in verse 15, even in the middle of this humiliation, he says, you, you, Lord, my God... Lay me in the dust of death. The greatest indignity isn't that when he cries out, God doesn't answer, it's that God himself is laying him down in death. And that's why it's incredible that even when he's going through this intense, overwhelming experience of suffering, of abandonment by God, David stubbornly refuses to give up his faith. And that's our second point, the faith of the forsaken. There are amazing experiences of confidence in God that run through this psalm that, for David, make this experience of suffering and being forsaken all the more disorienting. We've already seen that in the great paradox of verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then we see it again and again, all through the first half of this psalm. For each stanza of this song that is about I, me, my, there is a stanza that begins, yet you, where this abandoned songwriter clings desperately to his faith. See how he remembers Israel's history in verse 3? Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. 
He knows God's flawless track record, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, who rescues his people when they cry out to him. See the repetition of the word trust there. They trusted you, Lord. They trusted you and you did not put them to shame. Here I am trusting you. He remembers his own personal history in verse 9. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb you have been my God. His lifelong experience has been of trusting God and God's faithfulness returning back to him. It's as if God was the midwife at his birth. He's been beside him all his life. That's what we want for our children, isn't it? That they would never know a day where they don't trust the Lord. That's David's experience. And it all seems to have come to nothing. And yet he still stubbornly clings to his faith. Because that's what faith is, isn't it? clinging to God despite what our present experiences might tell us because we know the character and the promises of God. Even when all of our experiences scream out, God has forsaken you, faith is being sure that God never will because we know him. David knows the history of his God, his faithful, unchanging character. His promises, he knows his own experience of God, the relationship that he's had with God all his life and so he commits himself to God even though his present experience tells him otherwise. He trusts. When Satan tempts him and tells him to despair and tells him that all of the signs point to God's wrath on him, faith draws him back to God's promises and teaches him to wait patiently and keep trusting the Lord. And it's that reality which controls his life and his thoughts over and against his present experience. And so in verse 19, trusting in God, he casts himself one more time on the mercy of his Lord. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver, me, deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. He stubbornly clings to his faith in God and that leads to the great turning point in Psalm 22, the dramatic rescue and change in David's fortunes. Uh, if we were listening to this as music, uh, there would be a change from a minor to a major key, maybe in the middle of verse 21. See what happens in the second line of verse 21. He says, Save me from the mouth of the lion... You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. God has saved him. God has acted. Finally, his cries have been heard. Something remarkable has happened. We're not told what. There's no explicit explanation. We don't know what God has said in answering him. And it doesn't seem that it's important here to know. The thing that we need to know is God has saved him. He's listened, he's heard, he's responded. He has again entered into a relationship with David. Instead of silence, God now speaks. And so David will sing the Lord's praises to everyone who will listen. 
And so the third thing we see in this psalm is the forsaken returning to fellowship. And this really, I think, brings us to the point of the psalm. What has happened to David, to the Messiah, to God's King, is the cause for the praise and the worship of God in all of the earth. First, it starts in the congregation, in the fellowship of God's people, Israel. See what he says in verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I'll praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he's not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. David's experience of rescue and vindication becomes a reason for all of God's people, all of Israel, to rejoice. Salvation isn't just a private, personal experience, it involves the whole family of God. And so David returns to the congregation, he offers what he's vowed, he sings the praises of his God and all of the people share in his rejoicing. But like ripples in a pond, the chorus of praise then spreads out further and further. First Israel, and then in verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. The vindication of God's Messiah is the spark for the nations to worship his God. This rescue shows that the Lord is king and he is sovereign over all the nations and families of the earth. And that's good news, not just for Israel, but for everyone who turns to him. They will find salvation and they will live to sing his praise. It's good news for the nations, it's good news for coming generations, for a people yet unborn, in verse 30 and 31. Incredibly, actually, in verse 29, this rescue of God's king is a reason for those who have died to praise God. See verse 29, all the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Across all nations, across all time, through life and death, What God has done for his anointed king is reason for all people to sing the praises of God. And the experience of God's king is incorporated into the experience of God's people as a whole. The vindication of the forsaken king results in universal praise sounding out for God across the whole world. This psalm ends with a picture that is as amazing as its start was horrific. But the question that we need to ask is, does it fit? Is this a psalm that you can identify with? Does it resonate with your experience? Because as we've said, uh, that's part of how the Psalms work. They give us a language to echo our experience back to God. So does Psalm 22 do that for you? And I have to say, actually, in the incredible depth of suffering that we see here, it's actually something deeper than what I can go with. 
Uh, Even in the worst of my difficulties, in the lowest points of my suffering, it would be a disservice to this psalm to say that I can match its experience. And I wonder if that's true for you too. That's certainly true for David. Uh, David did go through uh, some dark times, his troubles with Saul, his sin with Bathsheba, being betrayed by Absalom, his son. But the commentators agree that despite these great difficulties, there's nothing in David's life that quite lives up to the experience of this psalm. Uh, David died in old age with a, a beautiful young woman beside him to act as his hot water bottle. He wasn't surrounded by uh, enemies like ravening and roaring lions. Uh, as great as his rule was, the nations never bowed down to the Lord because of David. You see, to try and make this psalm fit our experience or fit David's experience in some ways is like the ugly stepsisters trying to cram their feet in Cinderella's glass slipper. It doesn't quite fit. We'd be doing violence to the psalm and to our own experiences to try and cram it in there. Uh, We need a foot that will fit perfectly. And so it's no surprise that the Gospel writers went back to this psalm and used it to describe the experience of another anointed king of Israel, a son of David, a Messiah. Take Matthew's Gospel, for example. It's not at all hard to see that. Matthew saw Jesus' death as the true fulfilment of Psalm 22. It echoes all through Matthew 27. The soldiers in the governor's headquarters surround Jesus. They beat him and mock him as God's king, soldiers like strong bulls and ravening lions. They crucify him by piercing his hands and his feet, a method of execution that was unknown in David's day. The soldiers cast lots among themselves to decide who will keep his clothes as Jesus hangs naked and ashamed on the cross. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders surround him, mocking him, saying, he trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. It's easy to see that Matthew had Psalm 22 in mind as he describes the death of Jesus and the other gospel writers are the same. And of course, they do that. They see this moment as the fulfilment of Psalm 22 because Jesus himself had taken it on his lips first. At the climax of his crucifixion, hanging on the cross... Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Running through Jesus' mind as he hung on the cross were the words of this psalm that he would have learnt as a child in the synagogue having been cast on God from his mother's womb. But even more, he would have known these words as the one who had given them by his spirit to David the first time they were spoken. And here on the cross, he signals that his death is their ultimate fulfilment. He actively chose to make these words his own.
And so as we draw to a close, I want to draw out three implications of that for us. Uh, First, as he cried out to his father and for the first time in his eternal existence heard nothing but silence in reply, Jesus enters into our experience of suffering. Jesus suffers as one of us. He hung there as the fully human victim of God's enemies and was forsaken to the wrath of God that was due to us because of our sin taking death's penalty in our place. And his suffering as one of us, as that fully human victim, is the source of our salvation. That's what the writer of Hebrews shows us when he quotes Psalm 22 in Hebrews 2. Listen to what Hebrews 2 says from verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, quote from verse 22 of Psalm 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I'll sing your praise. Jesus, the founder of our salvation has suffered as one of us. But as he does, he reconfigures the end of the psalm. Uh, While David is saved from death, Jesus is vindicated through death. And so those who die now don't die without hope, but still live to praise him. Through his death, Jesus calls us into his family, calling us his brothers, sharing with us the blessing of being children of God. And it's because he suffers as one of us that he's able to save us. The second thing we see is that Jesus changes the experience of suffering for us forever. Just as David's suffering as the Messiah of Israel was in some way something that stood for the suffering of all Israel, so Jesus also does something that changes the experience of suffering for us. Jesus changes the experience of suffering for us so that no matter what prayer we might offer up in our suffering, we will never have to pray, why have you forsaken me? His suffering on the cross draws us in as participants. If we're united to him by faith, then his experience of suffering becomes ours and ours becomes his. His life becomes our life and his death becomes our death. We all experience awful clashes of experience and faith in our lives It's the resurrection of Jesus that vindicates that stubborn refusal to stop trusting. And as the Gospel writers transpose this psalm onto Jesus, showing us its true fulfilment, we see what it is that stood in that gap in verse 21, between those two lines, between David calling out and his deliverance. We hear the answer that God made to his suffering Messiah. Though he was forsaken to the consequences of our sin, his offering for our sin was accepted and he was vindicated as the true son of David 
risen from death to reign forever. And so even though in our present experience Satan might be whispering in our ear that we've been forsaken to God's anger and his wrath, Jesus' experience, his death and his resurrection call us back to wait patiently on the promises of God. Are you sick and suffering? Because of Jesus, God will never forsake you. Are you anxious or depressed? Because of Jesus, God will never forsake you. Are you being mocked and persecuted? Because of Jesus, God will never forsake you. Have you sinned and are struggling with guilt and shame? Because of Jesus, God will never forsake you. And so finally, this psalm stands as an invitation for all of the world to believe in the reign of God and to praise him. God's righteous king has suffered for us, bearing the wrath of God for our sin and bringing us into the family of God. And God has raised him from the dead as ruler and judge of all the nations. See that again in verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him, it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. The praise of God's king extends beyond the congregation of Israel to all the corners of the globe. It reaches back into the past and extends eternally into the future. And it's because, that he, uh, because he first fulfilled Psalm 22 as God's righteous suffering king, Jesus can claim this praise that the psalm describes. Because he suffered for us, like Matthew 27 shows, he can now claim in the great commission of Matthew 28 that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him and where to make disciples of all nations. There's not a single person in your home, in your workplace, in all of Toowoomba or all of the world who does not come under the rule of Christ who will not bow down to him on the day that he returns. But really, who else would you want to bow down to? Who would you rather bow down to than the one who used his rule and his authority to enter into our suffering, to serve us, to be mocked and ridiculed, to be killed and forsaken for us so that we would never fear being abandoned by God? This week, won't you tell someone that that's the king that we serve? The faithful, forsaken king who was forsaken to bring us back into fellowship with God. Friends, won't you join me in praying? Our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, your Messiah, our king. Thank you that he was forsaken cut off, mocked and ridiculed in our place for our sin. 
And thank you that because of him, we will never be forsaken. Thank you that in him we have a faithful and sympathetic brother, one who walks with us even in our darkest hours. And we thank you that when he cried out to you, you answered him. Not saving him from death, but vindicating him through death. And so, Father, please lead our hearts to praise you for what you've done through our King. And we pray that all nations, at all times, even through life and death, all people everywhere will praise you, for kingship belongs to you, Lord. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.